Hello and welcome. You're listening to Adventures in the Veil, an RPG discussion podcast. I'm Jake. I'm Ross. Sit back and relax by the fire, for there are tales to be told. Have that right out. Hello and welcome again to the Adventures in the Veil vale Tavern cast. My name is Ross McClure and here in the tavern we talk about folk RPGs. I'm joined today with Travis Miller from the Grumpy Wizard video and written blogs. Travis gives really insightful thoughts about old school and classical tabletop role playing. Uh, I found it really useful just both for myself and in discussions at the play club with new referees and it provides some of the clearest and simplest advice i've seen for what i think are some really deep concepts that are important to new osr referees welcome to the tavern travis thank you appreciate it so travis um there uh, there's a lot i want to ask you but there's two major things that i wanted to talk to you about kind of two blogs that you made uh, one is about this idea of an open gaming concept. Uh, and then the other one is uh, that sandboxing, uh, if you're coming into uh, an old school game or an indie game uh, that has more of a focus on exploration, that if you have some essential elements, that it will work well. And I want to ask you about those two things. But starting with this idea of an open gaming concept, very simply put, what is the open gaming concept? Well, it's a uh, an idea that I first came across reading a book by Rob Kunst uh, called the, Gen- the Dave Arneson's True Genius, and uh, I, I've since sort of not quite followed Rob on all the way down the path that he he has uh, taken with that idea. Uh, I've diverged a little bit, but the basic idea of it is that you have in games two type of systems there's a closed system game which is uh, like a chess game or a board game or a computer game where once you start play the game is closed there's there's nothing you can add to it there's nothing you can take away from it or you're not playing the game and and all the participants in the game before the game starts agree to the same rule set they say this is the win state this is the lose state these are the things that are included in the game these are the things that are excluded from the game and it's it's a closed system an open system game is a game where concepts or ideas from outside of the game can enter in during the play of the game so that's fundamentally uh, what differentiates between a closed system game and an open system game and what uh, Rob uh, asserts is that the Blackmore game and I would say also the what 
preceded it, which was the Brownstein uh, war game experiments that Dave Wesley created, was a combination of closed system and open system. And what I think he means by that is that you have certain parts of the game are closed systems and certain parts of the game are open systems. And sometimes the open system uh, intrudes on the closed system and sort of says, well, wait a minute, we have a problem here or the, or the closed system is insufficient to the task that we're putting it to. So we have to insert something in here to make this work. Okay, uh, I want to take that and kind of like peel it apart a little bit, but sure. th the first thing I'd like to do is create some touchstones for somebody that th our audience primarily, uh, who, who this is, is for, although I think anybody could listen to these, these podcasts and, and gain something from it, but uh, it's for uh, particularly people that are coming over from the brand game, the big, the okay. big and game, um, or uh, if they're starting in tabletop role-playing games for the first time and they're starting with indie games osr games you know and they're, they're starting out here uh so let's uh, imagine like we've got some dungeon masters or players and they're used to dungeons and dragons fifth edition now you use the example of fourth edition so i think maybe that more clearly is like that right like it has these clear you're going to activate this ability and, and you know and you have these powers uh, and you're going to press those buttons at certain times and stuff, and you're going to interact with those systems. Um, but, but I think it, I think it's probably true of Dungeons and Dragons Fifth Edition. It's a very tightly wound system. It offers a lot of things. So let's say you're in a common situation uh, in the game, like um, uh, I don't know, the classic. You know, you're traveling down a corridor, and you suspect that there's something there. You know, like there's something there, either a trap or a monster or an ambush. Uh, what would that look like for the for the modern player that is not doing that? They're they're not using this kind of open game uh, system. They're relying more on the closed system. What would that look like? You know, just normally in a session of play. Yeah. So fifth edition, I think importantly kind of stepped away from the closed system approach you can play it in a more open system approach uh, the problem is is you have you know the the culture of play that started with third edition and became really intense in fourth edition play and then just people sort of thought well this is just how you do it so they carried it over uh, what that generally looks like if you're using the closed system approach is you are looking for a rule or a mechanism or a procedure that's written down in the book that's preceded the uh, players to the table, so to speak, where it's, you're, you're saying, I want to roll this check. You know, typically it's going to be something for the modern game it's going to be something called perception um, and, and certain other uh, you know mechanics first kind of games you, they might call it a spot check or a search check it, you know, it really depends but fundamentally what you're doing is you're using a mechanism of the game to interact with the with the uh, conceptual construct that we're all sort of building in our brain as we go along in, in the system. An open 
type method would be the player sort of imagining themselves in the place of their character and thinking about what they might do to discover a trap. So they might use a tool that the classic 10 foot pole, uh, tapping ahead, you know, uh, they might toss a lit torch down the hallway. They might pour out water from a f flask to see if the, the, if the hallway has a, uh, has a grade to it where it's you know going downhill somewhere or maybe uh to detect a pit trap where water spills along a certain line within the hallway um, they might send a uh you know an animal or a charmed monster or something like that down the hall first there's a bunch of different approaches you could take to it that are generally not specifically looking into into a rule book and rolling dice it's simply imagining what would i do if i was there in the place of my character okay uh let me um i'm gonna just so to help me visualize it i'm gonna grab a random modern osr adventure okay this okay. is um incandescent grottos by gavin norman and the crocodile okay so i'm gonna just flip to uh because there are plenty of hallways <laughs> so yep. i'm gonna flip to a hallway uh, and, I, and I guarantee it'll have stuff in it. There'll be something going on, because that's kind of the approach a lot. All right, so here we are. Dark stone blocks. Um, it's, uh, it's dank and dripping from the ceiling, and there's wet debris about places, and this is foreshadowing the existence of these, what it calls, gelatinous squirms, four-foot-long slug-like slimy creatures uh, that lurk silently along the ceiling. And it, uh, it telegraphs that using these, uh, you know, indications that there's slime along the stones and stuff. So here I am, and we're a group of players, you know, playing characters. And we're on the near side of this hallway, and we see this, uh, you know, the referee says, the, the stone blocks are pockmarked with something that has eaten away at it. It's dank, and the debris along the floor is wet, and there's slime trails along the floor of the ceiling. You know, so something's there. And so you're saying in a modern game, a person might say, um, I'd like to roll a perception check. Is that, <laughs> you know, is that right? And then something they, along those lines. Yeah. And it's not a 100% always this right. way kind of thing. Because I have gotten, I have received some pushback from some 5B gamers that said, well, we don't do it that way. And, and 5B totally. does yeah. absolutely allow you to do that. There are some games and some gamers and some, some game masters that want you to roll the dice, use a skill, use it, use it, use an ability from the game system instead of interacting directly with the game master and having the game master describe what you see. And then, you know, let's say you hold a, you tie a torch onto a pole because the ceiling's too high and you hold it up there and oh wait here's these slimy little critters and we got to do something about that gotcha yeah okay so, so rather so rather than it's it, in a lot of ways it's it's kind of applying common sense and general knowledge to these things i, I sometimes call this implied rules so if you okay. look so if you look in a game like classic D&D there's a lot of implied rules and 
what I mean by that is there will be a thing like uh, torches and there's things like um, flint and steel in the game. So there's no rule in the rule book that says you have to have this skill to be able to use flint and steel. There's no rule that says uh, there's no rules about when you can light a torch or how you light a torch. They're just there in the, in the, in the equipment list. So one has to conclude, well, what would, what would an adventurer do with flint and steel? Well, they would light a fire with it. Right. There's no rule that says somebody can't light a fire. There's no rules about... There's no rule about taking a water skin and seeing which way the water tumbles on the floor or... Right. Um, you know, all that is implied. There's no rule that says you can put things in a backpack. It's a backpack. <laughs> so Correct. You put things so, in it. So... So we have to imply a whole bunch of, uh, we have to deduce what these rules are. We have to sort of figure out, well, what does he mean? What, why is this here? And what's it for? Which allows this open system to function because there's no specific rule saying, this is how you use a flint and steel. And this is the context within which you can use that flint and steel. So now I have as a game master either to decide, well, is it just a routine action that the character is doing? Is it just a normal thing like lighting a, 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 a simple you know, Bic lighter? Or is this a situation where the, the character might actually fail and that failure might have a, a negative consequence? Yeah. This makes me think of a couple of things. Um... Uh, my co-host and I had a conversation about uh, diegesis, like this idea that in these uh, indie and old school games, what you know and what you would do uh, in the world is not so separated from what the character would know or do. The character, uh, you know, the character would know what flint and steel is and be able to use it. A character in the world would not know what a perception check is and would not be able to use it. And right. so uh, a lot of these games are more uh, diegetic, like you're just doing what you would do in the world and interacting with the fiction. Um, and so, okay, so you got Flint and Steel and you're going to, first of all, let me frame this so that, you know, somebody that uh, maybe they are coming from Dungeons and Dragons 5th edition or uh, from some other game, let's say that they do use this method. Because I have heard, I, so this is something I have a lot of modern players do. And I'm going to give another example of this that I just had recently. Uh, and I, I think I have it every single time a modern player is trying out an OSR game. I think I've had it every single time uh, with every single modern player. I'm going to give that example in a minute. But let's say, all right, they roll a d20. And a default difficulty class, which is a target number uh, for the dungeon master, is 12. And you know that you want to roll a d20 to get a 12 or higher to per perceive something, an, an active, not a passive perception, where it just happens automatically or but uh, I'm going to do a perception skill check in Dungeons & Dragons 5th edition. And, um, you know, let's say they have a plus 2 to perception. So they roll a d20 and they get a 10 and they add 2. Bam, I got a 12. All right, I have succeeded. And usually Dungeons & Dragons, it has like a binary outcome. You either win or you don't. You either succeed or you fail. 
this. All right, you have succeeded. So then I say, all right, you have you see in the darkness these things uh, crawling along the ceiling, you know, and, and they're leaving those slime trails you saw earlier. And uh, so now they are able to act, and it brings them to the next decision point. And you're saying that in these games, um, and I want to return also to this, this idea that the rule isn't there, uh, but let's say we're not going to use a rule system. You just know that there's something around there, uh, and you and you and maybe you have to ask. You say, well, where do the slime trails go? And I would suggest, like, the referee should just freely offer this information. Like, you shouldn't try to hide it or, you know, conceal it behind something. Like, oh, it looks like they go along the walls and go up to the ceiling. Uh, or they go from the ceiling and fall along the walls. And they're like, okay, well, what's on the... I'm going to take a, a long pole and add a torch to it and hold it up to the ceiling. And then, bam, okay, now you, you see these slimy things crawling around. And you're saying that, uh, that you would do that more in this open gaming system that uh, the players have to pull not so much from the rule books, but from the miasma of their experience and knowledge and all the books they've read and movies and everything else, you know. Uh, yes. Yeah, and, and that you're going to resolve that. Uh, and then it's going to bring you to the next decision point, just as surely as if you rolled a die. Um, yes, correct. Uh, okay. So there, there's a couple of things I want to bring up. One is, let's say you're playing mostly something like basic and expert Dungeons & Dragons, which seems to be a lot of the default basis for a lot of the, these fantasy adventure games nowadays. So something like BX, where it's Black Hack or, you know, Knave or... Shadow Dark or whatever this fantasy adventure game is you're using. And uh, you have a role. Like they say, and, and, and so they want to use the modern uh, approach and they say, I want to stop and, and spend 10 minutes listening. And they do that constantly. <laughs> <laughs> or the referee wants to do that. Like, and they're like, well, make a listen check, make a listen check, make a search check. Because that exists in Basic and Expert, right? Like you roll a D6 and you're bound to just fail like the vast majority of the time. Uh, you know, uh, Morkborg. I also, I, I know somebody that did this in Morkborg and we, we had like six characters die. You know, eventually <laughs> we were almost about ready to just give up on the dungeon. Uh, so some, sometimes the rules are there. So, I mean, what about that? So this is a thing where I think a lot of old school renaissance and really the the original games because they do kind of differentiate a little bit between osr games and old school games sometimes um, i think sometimes the games don't do a very good job the texts of the games don't do a very good job of teaching the game master how to run a game that's true yeah old school essentials says so up front right it says this will not tell you how to do a role-playing game i think it says that in the very front yeah, and, and I think there, there was a reason for that that was back in the early days of the OSR, basically people that assumed that the only people that were going to be interested in these games were geezers uh, who grew up with them or, or started playing with them and understood how the games worked and uh, had a good grasp on the concepts. So we didn't really need to spend the, the ink to do that, but I think that assumption is now incorrect and we have a bunch of younger gamers or new gamers or people who maybe played a little bit 
back in the 80s, but didn't really get a good introduction to the game uh, because they were 12 years old and they were playing with other 12-year-olds and we were all a bunch of idiots and didn't quite grasp what was going on. And so there's a whole bunch of assumptions that get made about that. But I think what happens when you, what, you get a lot of times, I've seen this on Reddit a bunch of times where, where you get an ex exactly what you described, uh, a, a game master who says, okay, you need to make a D6 search roll and, you know, and spend 10 minutes doing the search when the only time I think that's an appropriate thing to do or, or using some other mechanic like that. Uh, and, and this is why I think this is a, a reason why people coming from fifth edition or, or modern sensibility games really struggle with old school games is because they're trying to apply a mechanism in a way that it wasn't intended to be used. You know, the search role, for example, is, is a mechanism that's used when your characters kind of either have run out, your players have run out of ideas or the um, thing that they're searching for is so well hidden or secret that uh, it's not too easy to detect it. And I think also just from a design standpoint, if you have something like that in a, in a setting or in, a, in like a dungeon room, that requires a secret role um, and the only way to find it is a secret role that's just a, a not a very good design method um, especially if that's a, a bottleneck to like you have to go through this space in order to get through the rest of the adventure or to get into the rest of the, uh, the dungeon i think that's just not a very good design technique so i think what it is is people are misusing a rule because they don't understand it. And that's partly on the designers and, and publishers because they're not explaining it very well of what it's for and when to use it and how to use it. Right. I, those are two things that I see happen with people coming into what is, in my experience, a, a old school hobby dominated by the thought of basic and expert D&D. So, uh, never mind the fact that there are other strands of DNA in classical gaming. and That, that seems like a dominant um basis of things for me and uh, I see people employ the rules because they say it says it you know it says you can check doors listen uh, invest in the search rooms and things like that and so they do it and then it's just so brutal and you just fail and you just can't succeed uh, and, uh, and and I'm hearing you say that you shouldn't just employ those rules all the time that that, that should probably be clarified to say that, that, that that's meant for something more specific or, or as a kind of um, uh, as something else, but this maybe is a little bit of a generalization, but maybe games that think of that more like a save. Now I'm talking about like people coming from the modern game where everything does have a check and you can reliably, you can do that. You could, you can rely on a check to resolve things, but sure. in, in this game, the checks are from a modern perspective. Maybe you should think of that more like a save or more like a case uh, like a like a niche, uh, like uh, it's not something you would do all the time. Um, yes, correct. Um, it should actually be. It, it's not a routine uh, activity. Uh, yeah. Brunsinger. Uh, I wish I could remember what the 
title of the video was. He was talking about this on a, on a YouTube video recently where he was bringing up uh, a, a bit of text from Chaosium's uh, Call of Cthulhu 6th edition. I'm not sure if this is in the 7th edition text or not. But it states very clearly that you only need to do a roll for a situation when it's not routine. So you have so you have so you have skills in Call of Cthulhu like use library. Ah. Uh, right. You, but Lord have mercy, you should not have to like go and use that to pick up a book and look at it. I mean Yes. Or to a, find a, a book in the library. Yeah. Or 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 to, you know, go through the card catalog and find oh, I need this specific book or I need a book that has this something about this topic. Oh, it's in the restricted area. You'll have to go talk to um, the restricted area librarian and get permission to go in there um, and then find the specific book. And then can you use a table of contents and an index? You know, those are the only time where library use becomes particularly we're actually rolling dice to see if you actually do find the material you're looking for is when something is so completely obscure or weird or unusual that um, you really have to have a character that knows how to use yeah. the more complicated elements of the of the library or where to go where to even look at to go find something specific that they need does that explain why the thief in most old school games, both in uh, the, you know, once OD&D introduced the thief and also in BXD&D and those kind of two DNA strands, does that explain why the thief is so perilously inept at their skills? Like if you just expected the thief to do everything on their skill thief skill list from the get go, they would die to the first poison trap. Whether it was a conscious design choice, which I suspect it was up to a degree. I'm not entirely sure what the design choice was, intent was behind it. But from a, I guess, observational, dis descriptive perspective, that's what it is. You know, if a character tries to um, do something at low levels, there's a pretty good chance they're going to fail. I think one way a lot of people describe it or, or at least uh, interpret it is that uh, if you're looking at, a, say, a sheer surface, a non-thief character would have a 0% chance of climbing it. Because it says sheer surface. Like, that, that is right. something very special. And I guess that's what right. I mean is, like, hey, this is very special. Like, this isn't just, you know routinely climbing something <laughs> right yeah this isn't climbing a ladder this isn't uh going up a rope that's securely fixed to a to an anchor point this is this is oh there's fingertip holds and you know you'd need alex hunnold to have a uh a hundred percent chance of climbing up this thing it's 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 a really difficult climb and then at least the way I run it is if the uh, character has tools of some sort, you know, uses spikes, uses uh, 
you know, a grappling hook or something like that to help steady themselves. Either the the tool makes the thing 100%, yeah, you can do that, or it increases the chances that they can manage it uh, without falling. And again, we go back to the diegetic sort of approach. You know, if the player can say, well, I'm going to do this, this, and this, you know, depending on, on how creative they get with their solution to the problem, I might either say, yeah, you do it and up you go, or I might give them, well, you're still 75% chance of, of, of doing it, but there's still a, a small chance that you might fail. Yeah, now that seems like an interesting part of this too, because the, so the, these are kind of some observations I've seen of modern either dungeon masters or players and they're trying out one of these um, an indie system or an older system a classical system and so uh, another one that I another thing that I see is a propensity to either say no um, even though that is not in the school of thought of, of like neotrad gaming like uh, you're supposed to say yes as much as possible but a propensity to say no or to provide a mechanical filter uh, to, to try to say, you know, uh, well, you can do it, but now there's this type of check. Um, and uh, it sounds like this type of gaming in an open gaming concept actually could free referees actually to say yes a lot. Because if the, if the, play, if the players, uh, you know, like, again, we're in the hallway, you see the slime trails, and they ask a question about the slime trails. If they just connect to that, if they just pull on that thread and they say something like, how fresh are the slime trails? If that's the first thing that comes to mind, you could say very fresh, right? And uh, okay, so it seems like it's here right now. This wasn't 50 years ago. Or if they say, what direction do they go? Oh, up to the ceiling. Well, then they're going to look at the ceiling and, uh, you, you know, uh, you can just give the information freely, you don't, you know. Um, or if, if there is some sort of, uh, you know, if it, if it is less clear or more difficult, then eventually you'll get to that mechanic, you know, but it sounds like, it sounds like this, uh, uh, is more of a yes system actually. Well, for me it is. And, And, you know, there are different. You know, different game masters have different approaches and different interpretations and different methods. You know, and I've seen old-timey DMs be very strict on these things, and I've seen old-timey DMs be very generous on these sorts of things. So it's it's it is a certain amount of variation, which was one of the things that the third edition game designers were trying to get away from. They were trying to make a game that was very player directed very player uh, focused on mechanisms where players would think in terms of mechanism and go have a a robust rule set that would tell them the probability of what was going to happen before they even told the game master what they were doing uh, and, and and a lot of it was because there were just bad game masters uh, and you know, one of the one of the designers on third edition was Skip Williams, who spent years uh, being the uh, question answerer in uh, the Dragon Mag in Dragon Magazine. I forget the is it Sage 
something. Sage, sage advice column. Sage advice column, yeah. And, you know, he would get hundreds of these letters about bad game mastering takes. Oh, wow. And, and, and the thing was, is that was a, um, a bit of a, uh, it was an easy thing to get selection bias because most people aren't going to send, weren't going to send TSR a letter saying, Hey, uh, we had this weird thing come up last week and our game master made a really good ruling about right. it. And, uh, we all agreed with it. And, uh, he said yes. And we moved on. Like <laughs> right. nobody's gonna, nobody's writing skip Williams a letter and telling him, Hey, this game is great. Um, or this method of DMing is great. Thanks. Yeah. Um, you know, they're going to send letters when they're irritated or upset with their game master or the game master isn't sure what to do about a situation um, just because they didn't have very good or, very, or they weren't very experienced with the game. So that would give you this idea that, oh, there's thousands and tens of thousands of game masters out there screwing it up. So we better give them a rule so they don't screw right. so that the player's experience is, is predictable. Yeah, now this brings up actually an, an, another interesting point about this, and I, this is something else I've observed uh, that happens. Uh, is you kind of you you said this depends on common sense. This depends on the the ideas, the fictional imag imagination that players and the referee already bring to the table. Movies and cinema and books and uh, comic books and video games and. Uh, common everyday experience and what would work and you can you can adjudicate things using that um, and um, that sounds really intimidating like a, and I think if someone listening to that coming from the modern game right now uh, they would say wow this sounds like it would be tough to referee and uh, something I've seen is going back to the example of you're in the hallway and uh, all right they decide they're gonna try to use what they have to lift something up and raise it to the ceiling and invert like a torch uh, to see if they can both see or see if the torch will interact with the slime you know and see what happens uh they find a way to safely poke at it and i invariably i've seen um uh players uh i i haven't seen referees do this much because referees usually are focused on even modern ones, how do I get them to the next point where they can make a decision? Um, I think that's something the old and new school have in common. Um, so, uh, but the players will sometimes be like, well, what do we have uh, that we didn't bring a 10 foot pole? Is there a stick nearby? What if we have this spear? The spear is, uh, it's like five, this one's five feet long. Uh, well, is that long enough? Do I need a, do I need two spears? Can I tie the two spears together? Do I have, I, I've heard the, 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 the details, the granularity go down as far as, you know, is, is the, is my flint and still wet and how much, you know, and then I think usually a referee, uh, it seems to me that the key for this to work as well, isn't just the shared fiction, but a referee that has the skill to frame that fiction to make actions and choices and, and to pare that down through communication and say, no, 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 don't worry about that. Your flint still is fine. You can reach it with a spear. You can put the torch on the end of the spear. And they're like, okay, well, we do that. And then you get to the next decision point. And if something's unclear, you either make it, you disambiguate it, you make it less ambiguous, 
you provide choices if something's unclear or you ask, well, what are you trying to do? Are you trying to get it up to the ceiling? Oh, okay, yeah, you can do that. You know, you, you've got what you need for that. You know, and you, you, you continually communicate and that communication provides the ability to make choices uh, because uh, in this completely open gaming concept where there are no buttons to push, that can be unclear. Like they don't know, you know. I, I've had, right. the, I've encountered that a lot with new players. Yeah, what I do a lot of times if I have a player where it seems like they, I haven't quite, because a lot of times, you know, game masters get a little uh, ego driven. I think maybe, um, or the, or they want to play this game of gotcha. Yeah. Um, you know, I try to, and this is just my personal perspective on this, I try to make sure that players are very clear about what is front of the, in front of their characters. And if, you know, and it really depends on what, who I'm playing with. If, if it's a group of new people or if it's a group of, of people who've only played more recent games and they don't quite seem to get the concept yet, um, I will say hey okay you have I'll, I'll tell them hey you've got a couple options here and here's a few things that you could possibly do yeah or and and not and that you're so, limited well, this, to those things but yeah here's, right not you that know. you're limited but you can here's a couple ideas or here's or i will um restate the situation and the decisions that are in front of them uh in a in a more succinct way you know, because you might have a five-minute conversation back and forth about what they're seeing and what's going on in front of them, and if they seem like they're sort of stuck, I'll go ahead and say, "Hey, okay, let me just run down what's in front of you one more time, so that you, so that we make sure that we're on the same page." Because yeah. you know, we don't have, you know, we're not in a in a hologram or or a, or a perfect simulation. We're in a, you know, I'm talking to you. And the image that's in my head might not be the same image. It's almost certainly right. not the same image that's in your head. So I have to make sure all the salient details are clear to you. And then once I feel confident that the player has a, has a real clear view of what is going on and what is actually important that's in front of them, then I'll uh, sort of step back and say, so what do you want to do? Yeah. It seems to me that in order for this to work, that seems very important. Uh, and maybe don't have like 20 details, you know, like have within what our minds are, uh, without becoming saturated, uh, with, with, you know, where we start to shedding details uh, that we're trying to understand, you know, provide absolutely no more than 12 i think is like the you know but I really just three to five is really really yeah where yeah. i yeah I, I have adhd so having trying to hold uh, more than three to five things in my head at one time is is difficult to begin with but the i, I read a little bit of pop psychology and stuff like that um uh, or just trade books written by psychologists and in you know the the, the modern current neuroscience that I've read says, you know, three to five, you know, points of choice or ideas uh, is really kind of the limit of what you can hold in your head at any one given time and, and really sort of incorporate all that stuff together. I think the simpler you can make things, the better you are, because it's already complex 
there's no sense in making it more complicated. Yeah, that, that seems like just good advice, OSR or not. And another yes. thing that my co-host and I talked about that's key, uh, that also just seems like a, I, I'll, if we have time, I, I, I dug into this too much. I dug too greedily and too deep. And I don't know if I'm going to get to the second topic. But, um, but uh, we talked about this idea of apophenia and how you can rely in, uh, on the, the mind's ability to fill in gaps. And in fact, the, the mind seems to work that way more than actually trying to provide details. That really our mind works on filling in these details. And that's what gives us a, a picture of the world. And so, like in one of these adventures, they don't give you all the details of a room. They give you uh, a couple of sensations when you enter the room. The beach is sandy, soft white sand. Um, the lake is underground, cool, sparkling water. And then that's, that's about it. You know, maybe a, one or two more. And then it's time to move on to the things to press in that place to investigate. Yeah, I think it's it's really just a matter of, of identifying what's important. Yeah, and then usually what, these things are, the are sal- tied to telegraphing something, something that will right. tell you what's, what's the, about this. What, you know, what's the salient detail? I mean, because you, you read most dungeon, they don't tell you, well, this is uh, a an igneous rock that was formed five million <laughs> years ago. Oh, I've seen some. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, I mean, you get some of that, but it maybe it's... And sometimes that's important. Like uh, I played in a uh, convention game, and the, uh, the 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 tunnel was a form of like volcanic glass, and that had an effect on the magic that you could cast in there. Okay. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean. So, so, so. But that's a salient. But that's a salient detail. And right. that's really what it comes down to is what's the salient detail that I need to have in order to communicate what the objective and the obstacles are in this particular encounter that allows the players to decide, make a choice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that there are not too many details. The details are actually actionable, something that could be used. Yeah. Um, yes. I mean, maybe it's useful to define the space in general terms. You're in a forest. I know that sounds silly, but I just talked to Hexpress, and we were kind of talking about how it's possible in a sandbox uh, to, you, you need to let people know they're in the forest. You don't need to let them know that it's a coniferous forest with the, the, the pine needles aging, and uh, it appears as if uh, something has maybe rotted the soil. If that's disconnected from anything that they can act on, then they're going to go investigate those pine needles for a three-hour watch, and, and it's not going to make any sense. And it's going to be disconnected from... You can just be... You're in a forest. <laughs> and then right. you can give the details that matter. Um, so, another, so all right. This open system, we talked about diegetic elements. Something, hey, you have something in your inventory. You have flint and steel. You have a, a spear, a rod, a 10-foot pole. You could try to attach a torch. You can try to... Um, uh, you could try to uh, send something ahead, you said. You know, maybe uh, if you've negotiated with one of the denizens of the place uh, for enough coin, they'll, they'll, they'll go and investigate it and, and take the brunt of some of the danger for you. Uh, you know, something that's actually in the fiction rather than an ability or a mechanic or something like that. Uh, th- I wanted to present another situation that I have come up almost every time. 
almost every time a modern gamer or a gamer coming from the brand game uh, comes over to uh, and just trying out an old school game or an indie game. Uh, and uh, this is something in the realm of the mind and the difference between the character and the player. I wanted to get your thoughts on this. Um, so um, this is similar to a situation I, I just had. I always have this, though, every single time someone tries out an old school game. So let's say we're further ahead in the dungeon of the, the incandescent grottos, and you're toward the end where kind of a significant monster's lair is. And it says uh, that there is this... Um, the cavern opens up into this underground stream and there's a bridge um, that crosses over onto an island in an underground lake and if you go out onto this island that's about 20 feet across uh, uh, it, it says that there is a um, there is a, a coffer in the center of it uh, and nearby uh, starting as a bloated corpse, something arises. Uh, it says it has oozing pustules, purple robes, and gold jewelry with three eyes. And it's this, like, ooze priest, you know. And, uh, and, it, and it presents itself as, like, this holy priestess of the ooze. Um, and every time, without fail, I'll have a modern gamer say, can I make some kind of roll or history check to know anything about the ooze? And, uh, and I do something blasphemous. I say, no. <laughs> no, you cannot. Um, and uh, that's, that's an interesting situation I encounter because, uh, you know, in the modern game you have uh, the history skill, arcana, uh, what else would it be? But you have these sort of things that represent the the power, the capabilities of the mind of the character, and you can activate those abilities uh, to to try to resolve that situation. Um, but here, uh, if we have the open gaming concept, um, if they've never heard of ooze and they've never read a fairy tale book about ooze. Um, or anything like where does that where's that even come from in fiction where they've never watched what is that the blob or <laughs> one of those pop <laughs> pop fiction kind of things about oozes what would they know they wouldn't know anything you're right so then what do you do you know uh you know it depends on the situation for at least the way i do it if the if it is some if it's something where they're that's totally absolutely bizarre that's that's where their character couldn't have possibly known anything about it, then I will tell them that their that their character simply doesn't know. Uh, if the monster is very common in the setting, so let's say there's goblins in my setting, and goblins are pretty that even your average peasant has come across goblins, then your average peasant is going to have all kinds of stories rumors, folklore, all that sort of thing about goblins. And I might give a brief bit of, uh, of information like, well, the, the, the there's all kinds of stories about it. You know, they say that uh, goblins emerge from uh, improperly dealt with trash, the, you know, whatever it happens to be, and that if you sprinkle salt on them, they'll die. 
I mean, what, whatever, whatever, you know, whatever I think, whatever I've created for that setting, uh, if it is something that's more obscure, like let's say dragon lore, but you take like a wizard who might possibly have, you know, picked up one of his master's tomes and read it as part of his education or if uh, let's say a priest or a cleric character uh, is coming up against something unholy which we presume that the reason they're out adventuring is that uh, they were sent out by their church to deal with uh, the unholy and terrible manifestations of chaos in the in the universe then I might give them a you know, roll under your wisdom or roll under your intelligence to get a bit, a bit of knowledge. And, uh, and, but that's just me. And I, I don't know. There's, there's not a, I don't think there's a general consensus about how to handle something like that. Right. My general, my, my general is either, you know, something about it because everybody knows something about it. You know, kind of like the way... That's true, too. It, it could be possible your character could know something you don't because they are a medieval fantasy adventurer and you're right. just not. So maybe you just know something. They, they just know something. That's true. Right. You know, like there's the uh, you know the, the, the folklore about tying bells to your tennis shoes if you're going to go out someplace where there's bears. And then, and then you'll know that there are bears in the area when you find uh, bear scat with bells in it. Yeah, kind of deal. Um, you know, there's there's all these little, you know, we have, uh, you know, urban folklore about all kinds of things in the real world, and there's no reason why a fantasy, uh, medieval, pseudo world wouldn't have similar sorts of those things, especially around things that are common. You know, if if you know that there's such a thing as werewolves. Well, most people in the setting, we all have heard stories about using silver to kill a werewolf or uh, putting it, putting a stake through a vampire's heart to kill it. Uh, So there's no reason why a, an adventurer would be completely ignorant of a monster that they're facing. If it's a fairly common monster in the setting. Yeah. And, to, to, crown it, to, to try to create two poles to this, uh, you noted that there's, there are different approaches to this, and that, that seems true even among indie and old-school games uh, in that, you know, on one hand, you have people, it makes me think of, like, the, the Axe people and the simulationist renaissance where they, a big part of why they're playing the game at all is, is to create a rationalistic framework of real things, a, a truth to everything, because they desire and enjoy that. So if they're investigating dragons, there'll be books on dragons, there'll be mechanics about dragons, there'll be every kind of atom related to a dragon, and it's totally up to the players how they want to pick those atoms apart and discover it. And that's a joy that they experience in that. And then opposite of that, and this is maybe a little more where I am a lot of times, is uh, there's um, uh, the modern game uh, often assumes a rationalist framework for a fantasy world. And there's all sorts of things that kind of come out of that. And uh, to me, 
a lot of times what these classical games provide is a sense of uh, a, a liminal dream state, especially when you go in the underworld, which, you know, I like caving. I, I, I used to do a lot of caving. You know, when you go in a cave, your vestibular system says, what are you doing? Where are you? <laughs> and it starts freaking out. And the human mind actually starts messing. It start, you start getting messed with with your own mind under underground. Uh, there is this primal archetypal quality to descending beneath the earth you know that 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 we've had for thousands of years and uh and these these old games provide that and i often i I wrote a blog article uh the title's bad i know but it's called the myth of osr lethality and yes it's lethal of course having one hit point but i have observed that when you end up playing in the way that you've been describing that one hit point character usually doesn't die in my experience they actually don't yeah, die that's correct um, but what that one hit point does in our mind is it provides the opportunity to be the person to be the child where something is under the bed and um, in that that space um, so right. there, there's something to be said about like actually just you don't know uh, and that that, that, that that you can have a game and adventure where to me, like that's a whole part of the adventure is this sense of there is something in the shadows. There's something that's never completely revealing itself. There's something, I mean, that's kind of like the fairy tale genre. These are things that burble up from our primal mind. And, uh, and you get to kind of interact with those things. Uh, so there's a fun to me in not knowing as well. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a, I mean, it's, and it's really, you know, a, you know, one of the prob- one of the reasons I don't like the the modern more modern game is it tries to categorize, define, describe, and give an origin story and and a set uh, description to everything. Yeah, you know, you've it, got a small it, creature, a, a medium creature. Is it a creature at all? Is it a humanoid? Is it a you know, is it a, this type of creature? And everything has well, a taxonomy. And interestingly, yes. the characters don't even share that taxonomy. Like they, they, yes. they would not even know what any of that is. Yeah, and and so there's this. You know, you get these huge entries for monsters with like this big history and a and a background, and this god created them as servitors, and they re- they achieved some sort of freedom when this thing happened i mean there's like this huge whole backstory to them and it it constrains or at least it, it encourages the the game master to be constrained onto what the, the designer has given them rather than going i don't know <laughs> yeah i had that experience last night night before last because they were in a cave and there were uh, what are those things called? The things that fall from the from stalactites. Uh, oh, uh, uh, piercers. Piercers. <laughs> there were piercers, and I, I didn't say there are piercers. I said that uh, you know you're in this cave, and there are stalagmites and stalactites and pools, and of the stalactites you can see. I'm more on the end of just like completely offering the information a bit uh, and then just you do whatever you want with it and I, you know I don't I don't propose any way that anyone would ever solve a puzzle 
uh, and then they always end up solving it anyway, so that's a lot of fun for me. But they, the stalactites, most of them have a rock formation. You see among four stalactites that there is a, a, a brown, murky, muddy quality with a, a goop that drips from the end of them down into the dark pool below. You know, so I, I, I give that primal mind like, whoa, why are these four stalactites different in that there's this creature? And one of the players was like, well... I know what that is. I don't know if my, my character would know what that is because he played a lot of AD&D. You know? So he's like, yeah. oh, I know what that is. Uh, but then I end up presenting them in the wild in a way that maybe is different because AD&D often goes into details as you it just does. described. So I will end up just describing a hobgoblin in a way that is just some uncomfortable thing that you don't know out in the wilderness. And maybe it's a hobgoblin. Maybe it's a troll. Uh, and it's never clear, and I'm never going to call them a troll or a hobgoblin because, you know, y- your character wouldn't even know what it is. Yeah, I kind of go back and forth on that. Uh, you know, it kind of depends because if your characters have encountered ghouls five times already. That's true, too. Yeah, then, then that's um, at that point, yeah. And you go, oh, I, you see a pale, clawed... They usually end up coming up with their own names, so that's fun. Yeah, that's they do. They do that. Uh, You know, if it's and the player goes, was it like the other four times we encountered ghouls? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's a you know. So sometimes it's it's sometimes just a time saver just to go. You see, there's two ghouls consuming a corpse near the uh, in the in the graveyard, and you go, okay, yeah, we know what to do about that. Absolutely, Um, we have a plan for that. So you know, the the. You know, we have, we want a single set of prescriptive tools that this is what you always do in this thing always. And I, and I've certainly been that way before and more and more, uh, my answer to all questions in RPGs is it depends dot, dot, dot. Yeah. That's I say that's my number two axiom. <laughs> like the number two thing you get to is it depends. Uh, I agree. Uh, but um, yeah, so I, I had this situation. Uh, um, I've, I've all, so what you described where you have like the, the, the fifth edition, this whole body of information, which I used to love. I used to pour over those things. I mean, I still enjoy things like lore. Um, and they're fun to read. Yes. They're fun to read. Uh, it, it, um, uh, but not only does it constrain the expectations that would come from the dungeon master, but the other interesting effect is that it creates a problem that maybe wouldn't have been there. This is my observation, which is that, um, and this is that the communication part to me seems critical to this open gaming concept working, where if something's unclear, you get to the next, all right, well, What's your intention? Or, oh, I, I left out this detail. And you continue this back and forth communication of what the situation is as necessary so that they can actually act on the situation. Uh, because there are all sorts of problems that I used to deal with when I ran 5th edition that I no longer have. And one of them was the specter of metagaming. Uh, there was this, this constant specter of what do I know versus what, do my char- what does my character know? Because oftentimes players have this system mastery or this lore mastery where they will know reams and reams of information across texts and they'll know all this kind of stuff and all those expectations exist and they have to strain to say, all right, I am not that. And they have to separate themselves from that. And an interesting thing I've observed in the old school is 
a lot of times don't have to do that. And you can end up committing that cardinal sin of metagaming, and it actually works great uh, because uh, what you would know is sometimes what your character would know. Like we're running Classic Traveler, and one of the travelers, they're in this situation where they're trying to help a sp uh, Space Viking crew uh, a captain get his ship back and the the crew is split into these factions in the in this irradiated waste and they're all fighting over the ship so they're trying to play the factions against one another and unite different factions and you know this kind of stuff well one of the players knows a lot about like the prose <laughs> and the poetic and like Norse lore right and at one point kind of tentatively was like can I use that and I and to me at least in that situation I'm like heck yes you can use that and they, uh, they, they constructed all these clever solutions using their knowledge of like the Norse language and Norse culture and stuff. Right. Uh, and that wouldn't be possible in, in a modern game where uh, you have this big body of lore upon which everything kind of rests. You can, you can delve even deeper into that open gaming concept and uh, use things that uh, wouldn't exist there in the book otherwise. Yep, you sure can. Um, yeah, I uh, have ran out of. <laughs> I couldn't. I couldn't get to the second topic, but that's okay. Uh, I want. If you have time, <laughs> I'm more than happy to, to in, indulge you. If you want to do well, more, I have. I have some time this afternoon. Yeah, I and I. I appreciate that very much. I. Um, I suppose we probably can't get to the second topic, but I. What I did want to, at least, finish out with. Is since we've we've framed a lot of this in terms of like, hey, these are I've presented my observations of new people that that they start out in old school Renaissance games or they come from the brand game, um, but we've been talking about things in terms of what does this open gaming concept look like and what are you know what are some situations where maybe that could be misunderstood or or we could help people understand it. I want to zoom out. So this is kind of like my last question would be. Uh, apart from this open gaming concept, you said you called it a key, a key to understanding the old school renaissance. If that's the case, what are the other keys? <laughs> what's key two and three, if that's the case? Like, what are the things that, what's step one, two, and three, if somebody's coming from Dungeons and Dragons 5th edition, and they're going to try out Shadow Dark tomorrow, or they're going to try out Bork Bork? Uh, well, I don't, I guess I wouldn't, I, I'm not so Mork Borg and Shadow Dark and Nave and Cairn yeah, modern and post OSR for sure I, I know but. yeah some of those games I'm not I, I, I've read them I haven't run them or sure. even really played many of them very much and so from from my perspective I sort of have, have begun differentiating between old school and OSR yeah and I, to I agree. me yeah. And to me, old school means, can I take, keep on the borderlands and run this without changing it? Yeah, that's what I'm going to pitch tonight is uh, probably this with Shatterdark. Um, or, or, and you have can to change I, it. true. And, or can I uh, run a, 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 a uh, an adventure like Winter's Daughter using yeah. basic or OD&D without doing any changes yes okay so that to me is an old school game uh osr has become a set of somewhat vague and uh, ever-changing principles 
that usually starts with rules, not rulings. And there even sometimes I think people disagree what that means exactly. Uh, so uh, my personal perspective on what are the, the keys to getting old school play are, are firstly understanding this concept of, of, of an open game um, where the conceptual framework of the setting or the diegesis or whatever you want or the the mental construct or the or the theater of the mind or whatever you want to call it is the is the primary interactive tool that the players use to make decisions about what their characters are doing uh, that would be that absolutely that is the very first thing that you really have to understand because if you try to run an old school game and i don't care what whether it's an OSR game or what I could truly consider an old school game, both of those have this basic concept of uh, focusing on playing the world rather than playing the game, where the, 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 the setting and the world and what's going on in front of your character is more important than what's on your, your character sheet most of the time. It's not to say that the character sheet or the mechanics of the game are not important or that the game master should not use them because that's another way I think rules not rulings or rulings not rules gets misinterpreted is that what we're doing is completely ignoring the rules there are plenty of ways in which the rules should be used when normal when things that are in the rules and we've all decided that we're going to use this rule set and we go okay I have rolled a random encounter and the procedure is that I roll for surprise, I roll for counter distance. Uh, in this particular case, I'm gonna roll a reaction roll because these are humanoid characters with some sentience to them. And they may not decide that they don't want to attack right away. So I follow that procedure, I follow that set of rules. So I follow the rules when it is appropriate to follow the rules. And when I don't, and when there is no rule or the existing rules insufficient then I go back to a ruling um, which is based on the implied rules of the game oh I have Flint and Tinder so I can use them uh, or my common sense and general knowledge of our real world and the kind of setting and experience I'm trying to produce in this world so there's a there's a sort of a holistic sort of thinking that goes on about it it's not just you can't just apply one thing and expect it to work well. It's it's a whole set of things, all applied equally, specific to the situation. So that's the first thing is that open setting kind of framework of placing the world before the rules, uh, but still applying the rules when you need them. The second part is I think for and somebody who really wants to have an old school game experience is that you actually need to use a, an old school system. I think Shadow Dark and Cairn and Maeve and all these game systems are nice. They're perfectly good games. Uh, they also are slightly different in important ways. Uh, they have, you know, some of them have unified me mechanisms and I do think mechanisms matter. I used to be, oh, it's completely mindset. Uh, and I think that's not quite true because I think mechanisms uh, 
you impact the game in specific ways. Um, some of those rule sets do things like removing encumbrance and movement and um, taking yeah. care of uh, things like how many arrows do I have, you know, with a usage die, uh, those sort of things that I think is, is not necessarily as this. I think that changes the experience. Uh, maybe not in easily observable ways, but when you actually have a moment where um, having a character pay attention to whether or not they replenish their arrows in town uh, is a different experience than rolling right. a D8 to see if you rolled a one this time. Yeah, no, that. Um, so, I, I think I. I agree with you. I think I've had, the, I've seen this. I'm, I'm fairly new, by the way, like old school gaming. So I had, I was a dungeon master in like a forever DM in fifth edition for like six years, and then never found the kind of game I really wanted. I wanted a game that had a sense of like being this big open world, like Lord of the Rings, and you uh, could go on a journey. You know, you could go on this adventure, and it wasn't clearly defined. I wanted the sense of being this muddy booted adventure uh that uh had a reason to return to town and uh, i never had that eventually there was a, a there's a point of no return in the modern game after the second or third level really after the third level where um you never get to go back and you're you are now the center of the world and uh, the main character of a story and i i never enjoyed that as a player and i discovered that in the in the osr broadly um, yeah, uh, and I, I well, that is, that is one of the things that to me characterizes old school games is that the what I using high guy Gaxi and I call it milieu centricity, um, which basically just means that the characters are not the center of the world, or, or, or there is a uh, the the setting is the important piece, yeah, and that so for a time period the the players in the DM have have. You know, zoomed in on this particular group of characters, but you could easily zoom out to another group of characters or a different mix of characters. Yeah. Um, now, I, I I've observed something that you're saying um, as I've interacted with the Shattered Dark community in particular, as an example. And the reason I bring that up, I actually had an inter a, a similar conversation with Matt Finch, uh, where. Um, you know, he made a similar distinction. He said, "Wait, hold on. There's a there's a there's an important difference here. It's not to say that Shatter Dark is just not an old school game. And when they say, but when they say old school, they mean that spectrum of design principles is what they're talking about, like from Principia Apocrypha. So you've got elements of design, right? That, that that's the what they're saying when they say old school, uh, and and that it does have some things in common with classical gaming." But uh, but one of the things I've observed is oftentimes I think, man, these people would be better served if they actually just read the basic set from 1981 and actually tried it, actually tried discovering why it matters that there's a long corridor going nowhere. Uh, we had that experience in B4 uh, where uh, we used the rules from Basic and Expert D&D in B4 in a theater of the mind dungeon crawl, and suddenly it became a perilous consequence of their of their combined decisions <laughs> underground at level three 
when they did not were not able to take a rest after you know an hour in the dungeon, uh, were running out of light, uh, had closed off uh, one pathway for a monster from one end, and then had fled in an evasion a monster in another encounter back onto the same monster because they didn't map. And there were right. all these things that came together that you can't see unless you actually try it out. And you actually do that. And, I, and I, I've, I've observed, you know, man, these people should actually just try classical gaming. Uh, this would be a good thing, even if it's not for you. And, and I call it classical, or, or maybe a whole term for me is classical adventure gaming. Or that's, classical that's adventure gaming. That's usually what I say. Gaming, uh, which maybe isn't even role playing. It doesn't, the, for me, it usually is. Uh, and we uh, we play a game on Mondays. I use swords and wizardry, and then you know, but the authoritative ideas come from the three little brown books, and then that DNA strand that continues up to the one one EDMG, and that Gygaxian campaign melu is the goal. And uh, when I talked to Matt Finch about this, we that that first point that you said about you need to understand this type of world. You need you, you have to understand this world for this to work. Uh, the best we could come up with is this this actually maybe takes mentorship like you, you might actually need to like play in a game with a group of other people because uh, there's nothing in the text that's going to tell you exactly like this is where you need to put down iron spikes in a door if you do that it's going to create this noise this is nothing's going to like teach you dungeoneering except you need to like roll with people that already know how to do it because <laughs> it's almost right. like a well there, a there are ways they're... of learning it i mean because you got to remember that somebody did figure this out before yeah um through t trial and error and that's then true too, trading yeah. and, and trading stories uh you know you know gary and rob and ernie were sat at the table with dave arneson in gary's kitchen and um with Dave Megary and you know and and even there it was because Dave Megary had all the experiences from Blackmore of going yeah you know I think we should maybe avoid this wizard because he I think he's going to be in trouble I don't think we should taunt this wizard it would be a bad idea well they did and uh it was not a good outcome um but you know the the you know the, I mean you could certainly people can figure it out yeah. um, it is, it is, there is a much faster learning curve if, um, certainly for a game master, because this is a thing that I, I've thought about doing as a, uh, um, a, a, a recorded game kind of situation where, uh, as a tutorial for game masters of running an adventure and putting out, you know, a PDF, here's the adventure or the, deep, the dungeon that I'm running. Here are my notes from it. Here's and then here's a video of, of play. And then yeah, that'd be great. After and then after each encounter, do a commentary. That'd be awesome. Or have a ver yeah, be have a version of it where we just here it is the straight playthrough, and then a second version of it of okay here's my commentary of as the DM of what's going on and why I told them this specific thing and how I uh, adjudicated this and why I adjudicated it the way I did. And, and you know, where you take an hour of gameplay and maybe turn it into two hours with a commentary.
because there's a whole bunch of even if you watch an actual play video there's a whole bunch of stuff that the dm is thinking but not saying yeah uh and it's not particularly clear sometimes as as to why uh a dm made a certain choice over another choice and and having that information would be i think helpful to somebody that's new at it to go oh i see the principle here so that once they once they once they understand the principle they can apply it in different situations yeah that that would be amazing and i uh i think your blog in particular your video blog this i think either would be great by the way like if if it were written with pictures and step by step that would be really useful and easier easy to parse like you could kind of go down and Alternately, if you did a video blog, that would be great. But your blog in particular would be really ideal for that because what I see as your format is very digestible, very systematic, very direct, very direct, very clear presentation of what are very deep and complicated things. Because I see people get real complicated with this stuff and it's not doing us any favors of trying to help especially if somebody's trying to learn the classical adventuring adventure gaming style of play uh, i don't know if you'd agree but I, I think it is a challenge and uh, that's what we came up with matt finch that's kind of what he said he was like look you're just gonna have to work and that's not a bad thing <laughs> you're gonna have to like yeah try to learn and uh and that's a good and it can be fun too uh and making the mistakes can be part of the fun uh, I guess even it's almost kind of a joy that like you all have, that have been doing it for a long time, you have this experience and somebody's uh, new at it, they're going to make mistakes and you, they get to have that journey too, in a way they get, to, right. <laughs> they get to also learn and make mistakes. And, uh, you know, uh, so I pay attention a little bit, just a tiny bit to um, a local uh, Facebook group for D and D and it's pretty much all almost all uh, 5e players on that on that Facebook group and and the thing I notice which I find a little sad um, and I wrote about this a little bit on my on my most recent newsletter from last month um, that there is this anxiety that a lot of particularly young 5e players have about screwing up and 5e dms have about screwing up like you know you're this is not a simple hobby it's not easy in the sense that you can just you know figure it out and your first time through and 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 have it 100 percent correct all the time i've been doing this for a long time and i screw up calls um i think something is going to go a certain way and it doesn't uh, it happens. And so there's this sort of fear of failure or fear of disappointing the people playing at the table or, or even in players are afraid of disappointing other players because they don't know how to play the game the right way, whatever that happens to be, which I f- personally find just is a real bummer because... You know, when I learned how to play, I had never played the game before. I had never played any RPG before. I didn't have any concept of what it was. I just showed up. They told me how to create a character, and we played, and we had a good time. It was kind of a silly concept. It was a little weird. I couldn't tell you if the DM got got anything right or not, I, <laughs> or if they complete. But we had fun, and we had a really good time. 
And, uh, you know, if there's anything I could say to new 5e or fi people coming from 5e to this version of D&D is that it's uh, not an easy thing. It requires effort and, and the more time and thought you put into it, the better you're going to be at it. But you are going to make errors and that's okay. It's really, it's fine. You're still going to have a good time. I wonder uh, if even sometimes, because uh, it depends, right? Like uh, I'm, I know it doesn't look like it right now, but I, professionally, I'm an airline pilot. Uh, that's a profession where um, you you just you can't screw up, <laughs> right? Like yeah. there's so there are some things where it's like no, actually, don't make errors. Actually, right? But in this space, so especially talking about this open gaming concept, maybe that actually adds some spice that you couldn't have. Like that that's actually maybe kind of a feature almost. It makes me think of like Bethesda video games where something can emerge from it in the cracks yeah. of, of things that if it weren't a little wild and loose and, uh, and expansive and, um, and a lot going on. And, and, um, if, if it weren't for that, you couldn't have those, a lot of really interesting moments that emerge and you can have a referee who makes a mistake. And if you have a willingness to, you know, you don't have things that are so sacred, like the fact that a character dies, uh, the world will continue and the story will continue and that that can be more uh, more resilient and durable than I really need to make sure I get this right or the character could die or, and, and various other things like that um, then those mistakes can actually be part of the spice like it could actually right. be even uh, the, the musician Brian Eno pointed out a long time ago that the uh that as new technologies emerge for making music, it's their flaws or weirdness that uh, sort of define them and not the things that they do well or that they if they do correctly. Yeah, interesting. Like, you know, sometimes you, I've heard some people when they first got synthesizers back in the 70s and 80s, they threw away the manual and just started playing with the knobs and figure oh what sound can i do with what can i do with this you know like electric guitars when the electric guitars were first created distortion was a bad thing oh yeah <laughs> like, like you were trying to when you were playing an electric guitar you were trying to avoid distortion so you would fiddle with the knob depending on the space you were in and then somebody said well what if we turn the gain knob all the way up and see what happens <laughs> oh that sounds pretty cool let's just play it like that yeah. you know uh, so sometimes doing something that is quote unquote wrong actually ends up creating something new and interesting that um, you end up really liking and enjoying and going oh we've cre we've actually done something we've taken the thing and we've transformed it but if you're playing in a game where everything is descript described constrained it has to be this way or it's wrong then then what you get is, is is something that has no space to grow where you know one of the things one of the jokes i make about swords and wizardry is that the best thing about swords and wizardry is that it's not that it's very open and uh wide open to your interpretation and the worst thing about swords and wizardry is it's true. wide open to your interpretation because sometimes that that gets a little overwhelming but the uh 
you know, but I think it's generally speaking a, a good thing that it is wide open. Yeah, I do. I adore that about Swords and Wizardry uh, is like I have one of my players is a, also a Swords and Wizardry referee. And we look at something that will come up like magical research or uh, spells uh, and uh, all kinds of stuff will come up and he'll be like, this is the way I interpret it. And he accepts my adjudication as the referee and I'll be like, well, this is the way I would. And we love both. And I would love to play in his game and he likes yep. playing in my game. And uh, the things that come out of it, actually, we both really enjoy. Uh, we don't like look at the other ruling and be like, your ruling is different. I don't like it. We look at a different ruling and be like, oh, that's cool. That's a different ruling. And we really enjoy yeah, it. Yeah, I, I, I've been playing with the notion of, of making my next sandbox campaign a game, a Swords and Wizardry campaign, and acting as if uh, time had stopped in 1977, where I didn't have AD&D to lean on. I didn't have anything else to lean on where all I have is just what's in that book and I'm making it up from there. Yeah. I did that with classic traveler and I, 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 I love it. Like I, I'm, I have a purposeful ignorance and I don't want it to stop there. I want to grow and learn and go on. But I knew going in that I didn't know. Right. So I was like, Hey, I have an opportunity to actually enjoy this journey. Like to actually, right. You know, whereas where you all maybe already know, like I got, I got to come to classic travel and be like, I don't know. And I, and so I started with, with just this facsimile reprint book. Uh, and I was just like, I'm just going to see what happens if we do what it says. <laughs> and, yeah. and it was, a, it's been a lot of fun. And uh, I, it's been full of mistakes, like full, <laughs> full of mistakes. Uh, and it's just been a lot of fun though. Um, Anyways, um, I have taken a, a lot of your time, Travis. Uh, I love talking about this with you, uh, and uh, I've really enjoyed your blog. Uh, it's been very helpful to me and a lot of people in our play club. Uh, what other projects or videos, do you have anything coming up uh, that you want to tell us about? And uh, I'm working on a um, what I'm calling a sandbox kernel. or It's, it's basically a... Uh, sandbox it's just about finished i was actually working on some maps for it this morning uh it is called hogwater village of lies and it is a bottom-up sandbox setup so it's a village home-based village with uh interesting npcs and uh some simple layers a couple small micro adventures that you could do in two to four hours included in it um and it's basically a um, just a setup for you to drop your own adventures into or, or things that you've bought whatever you want that runs off the uh, implied setting of being on a borderland a borderland village run by a uh, a retired adventurer and all these different characters these different factions in and around the town who have uh, competing interests and how uh, those interests could either bring the town up or destroy it depending on which faction the party tries to uh, engage with or not engage with and it's just a sort of starting place for somebody to, who's not particularly who either just needs 
a basic uh, vanilla with chocolate chunks medieval fantasy setting um, or in or somebody who doesn't really know how to build a, a starting sandbox to look at it as a, as a sort of an example. Uh, it's built on a sandbox that I ran uh, and started in the village of Hogwater that ran for a couple years. So it's a, it's a basic thing I'm doing. I'm also working on uh, a series of videos about uh, how to build a sandbox, my process for doing that, because there's a there's a bunch of different methods of doing it, and my general approach to my blog and my videos has always been to uh, only really write about things that people either aren't writing about or from a perspective that they aren't writing about. There's really no point in me in regurgitating the standard, uh, here's how you build a sandbox, but my method is, is has some weirdness to it that other that others don't have uh, same way about how i did a couple videos about how i design adventures and encounters for adventures in my games uh, that that video is on my youtube channel already yeah um, and and that's a slightly different perspective and technique than than a lot of people use and in my in my Sandbox is actually a sort of expansion. My sandbox process is sort of an expansion of my encounter and uh, adventure design techniques. So those those are things that I'm working on, and and hopefully they will be done sooner rather than later. Um, the 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 Hogwater project has taken way way too long, uh, lo longer than I wanted it to take, but it's nearly finished. So all the writing. Most of all the writing is done. I need to do like keys for the for some of the maps, but other than that, it's like at a, I don't know, 45, 50,000 words, pretty close to that at the moment. So that'll be coming out print on demand before long. Cool, okay, so I, I, I'm gonna include a, a link in the description to the Grumpy Wizard blog, uh, the written blog, and also your video blog. I have a monthly newsletter that I publish. Uh, there's a, a link to that in the sidebar. Uh, if you sign up for that, uh, there's a uh, archive of essays that do not appear on my blog at all uh, in that in a Dropbox or it's a Google Drive. You get a link to that when I send when you uh, sign up to the newsletter, and then I send out the newsletter once a month. Sandbox process in there. Uh, I have a big long essay about running high-level old-school games. Uh, some other more general ideas about creativity, uh, some stuff about uh, just a, there's sort of a mixed bag of things in there. Sometimes I do quick reviews about bands I've gone to see, that sort of thing. Very cool. Awesome. Well, uh, I will include uh, links to your blogs in the description. Uh, Travis, thank you very much for coming and talking to us. You're very welcome. If uh, you'd like me to come back to talk about Sandboxes. Yeah. I'd be happy to do that. <laughs> awesome. Mythic Mountains RPG is a private online play club that focuses on folk RPGs. Folk RPGs are the games that belong to all of us. They're what actually happens at a table between friends. It's their voice that has the authority of what is fun and what works for them. 
Weekly, we upload our games to allow others to sit in with us. The channel isn't monetized. We don't own the artwork, music, software, or games shown in these actual plays, and you can find links to their authors in the description. Like, subscribe, and share if you wish, or don't. Just like games in person, you're welcome to pull up a chair, sit in, and watch some of our games. No performances, no fancy equipment, just regular people playing folk, pencil and paper role-playing games, and having a good time. We hope these games will prove a source of enjoyment to anyone just wanting to listen in, anyone looking for examples of how actual groups run and play folk RPGs, and most importantly, if you haven't found your group yet, you're welcome here at ours.